I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caperell, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll catch up on all the latest China news, from the partial phase one deal reached last week to the blacklisting of Chinese tech companies over human rights concerns. Plus, we'll break down what the NBA China dispute means for businesses. And we'll try and make sense of the latest USMCA developments. All that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. We're back with a fresh episode of The Trade Guys, and a lot has happened on the China front over the past week. Last Friday, USTR Lighthizer and China's top trade negotiator, Leah He, was here, and they struck a deal, and then a few days went by, and they apparently have not completely struck a deal, um, maybe have a broad outline of it, but I would say maybe some flags have been thrown on the field and some more work needs to be done. So, uh Bill, why don't you catch us up? What exactly did they allegedly agree to on Friday? And then what unraveled since then? The tip-off was that they provided no paper and no details. In fact, the president said that it needed to be papered over the next three weeks, which meant they hadn't written it yet. And it sounds like they had kind of a verbal agreement, although as more information has come out, it sounds like their pieces of it are taken from where they stopped last May. So that at least is is on paper, but it needs to be tweaked and, and approved. The basic deal, uh, I think, is in the end may just do nothing more than take us back to where we were when all this began. Uh, the Chinese have allegedly promised to buy more stuff. They have been vaguer in their commitment than Trump was. I think he said $50 billion. They've said not a number, and they've also said that their additional purchases will be based on uh, market demand. Also, I think on uh, no further tariffs being imposed, including the ones in December. So they're going to do what they were going to do anyway, which was buy more of our stuff over time. The $50 billion, it's never been clear what time period that is. If that were one or two years, that would be a big deal because it's never been more than 20, I don't think. Uh, if it's over five or 10 years, it's same old, same old. We put off, in, in return, we put off the October 15th tariffs. They were increases of older ones. Left up in the air was what he was going to do about the December 15th the new tranche that was going to go into effect, all the consumer items. The Chinese appear to be holding out for some commitment not to do that. Secretary Mnuchin made a comment about um, a currency agreement, which has not yet appeared, but appears to be pretty much the same as what he said they were going to do last April. Uh, There are rumors about uh, an IP commitment with no details. I think we wait to see the rest. It sounds as though um, if I were the Chinese, I would be smiling right now because what they appeared to give up is what they were always willing to give up, which was to buy more stuff. What we gave up was, you know, an element of leverage. There's nothing in this agreement that anybody has said so far that addresses any of the structural problems the U.S. has identified. So it's phase one. In a way, it's exactly what the brilliant trade guys predicted. 
Uh, Trump's not the only one that's brilliant. You see, we're brilliant too. It's exactly what we predicted, that he would do a phase, an interim deal, a phase one deal, and punt all the, the difficult stuff to later. I think this all comes back and bites him uh, or not uh, a year from now. So from the standpoint of keeping the thing alive, preventing him from having a failure, saying that he's accomplished a great thing, you know, this checks all those boxes, but there's not a big there there. Right. Look, there there wasn't a total breakdown. So that's that's probably on the positive side. And as in most of these arrangements, a, a verbal agreement is usually not worth the paper it's printed on. That's certainly the case here. We always knew that there was going to be some element of market access and some element of of sort of structural reform in any satisfactory final package. And it's it's still very vague, but uh, as you point out, Bill, the, the easy part of that is the market access part is the, is the increasing exports from the United States. But even that is less specific than I think anybody would like. Uh, look, there's time to hammer this out. There was a good headline or two and a, a sigh of relief from the market. Uh, but this is going to be a long negotiations if it ever really comes to a satisfactory conclusion. Nobody knows yet, but we continue to ask China to stop a whole set of unfair practices that they are highly disinclined to do. The idea of of getting anywhere fast in this has always been kind of crazy, uh, but whether we'll get anywhere slowly remains to be seen. There's two other elements to it, too. It's following the Japanese uh, model of putting these things in phases, and it's making the, the mistake that I think we've talked about before that uh, negotiators will warn you against is if you do the low-hanging fruit first and, only, and save the hard things for later, you make later much more difficult than yes. it would be before. Usually, you need some of the easy stuff to grease the wheels on the hard stuff, and by you know dealing doing the market access piece now, it's a little bit difficult, you know, to see how they're going to move on to phase two. The other issue that has bubbled up, and I don't think it will go anywhere, but uh, is uh, growing frustration in Congress. And I was at a dinner last night with with some members where this was mentioned about this kind of agreement doesn't go to them. Right. This, this is constructed in such a way as to not require congressional approval because it doesn't require any changes in law. And Congress appears to be unhappy about that. Uh, it's not clear to me that they're going to do anything about their unhappiness, but it's one more element of, of friction between the executive and the legislative branches. In the short term, there's the APEC leader summit in the middle of November where Trump is expected to sit down with President Xi and they're supposed to formally sign off on this phase one agreement. What needs to happen between now and then for them to really ink a deal, China to make good on farm purchases, uh, and for the U.S., you know, perhaps to hold off on the December 15 tariff hike? Well, the first thing is they have to get on the same page about what was actually agreed, because that is, to me, completely unclear. At some point, what was it, whatever was agreed in the room has got to be rendered to writing and, uh, and, and approved by both sides, so they can at least talk about what they're agreeing to. And at that point, there's at least there will be more information to the public and to members of Congress and other other parties with a, with a strong interest in this about about what what we can expect at least in the near term. So uh, so I think that's the first step. But uh, I also think that likely that they will continue on this path of taking what they can now, keeping enough tariffs in place to provide at least what the president believes is leverage and continuing to negotiate and continuing to to uh, demand further action on the sort of the the structural reform part of the uh, of the unfair unfair practices uh, 
argument. Which, which, by the way, is going to be fine with the Chinese. Yes. They're not giving up anything that they care about. They, yeah, and they like it that way. And yeah. that's fine. And if we want to keep doing that for years, mm -hmm. I think they will cheerfully keep doing that. Yes, they'll right. be hosting meetings all the way to you know the next century of uh, Live, we and, let them. And they can continue to buy our farm products when they feel when, as though they need when, to. When they're hungry. And yes. ex exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to be much of an issue well, for them. They're, they're out of pigs. And so, you know, yeah. there's going to be probably pork purchases. And sadly, I mean, that's a, a swine flu epidemic, which apparently now is spreading elsewhere in Asia. It's a highly contagious yeah, virus. African swine fever. Yes, a highly contagious virus. And given given farm practices in that part of the world, it's not surprising to see it um, spread quite rapidly. So we've been meaning to have Nick Giordano from the pork producers come on the show. Uh, we should go back and see what he has to say about this. They should be... Uh, there are various metaphors here. <laughs> right. <laughs> they should be fairly happy right now. Uh, and I think the soybean people will will be happy. Although if you talk to them, you know... that. It's going to take a lot of a lot of purchases to make up for what's been lost. Exactly, and we also, in the broader scheme of things, seem to be stuck in a long in a long term cycle where we make a short term deal. The Chinese buy some products. Uh, a few months go by. The president isn't extremely happy with the pace of the overall negotiations, and he makes another tariff threat. And there's been reporting that the hawks, the China hawks of the administration, are actually quite pleased with this outcome because it allows the tariffs to remain in place, it seems, almost indefinitely. It seems like that's what we're being set up for, that, right? It's, it's almost as if that's what they wanted in the first place. Exactly. And so the, the question is, you know, do they want to break the tariff cycle and what would be the best way of doing so? Well, the Hawks would like to see decoupling continue to the extent it's happening. And so leaving tariffs in place would do that. I think the problem here really is the entire relationship, commercial relationship with China is getting more and not less complicated. So as I see it, we now have actually three lanes which sometimes intersect and overlap. There's the unfair practices, call it the 301 investigation lane. There's a, there's the high tech lane, which includes dealing with Huawei and and all the all the related security and and uh, technology concerns associated with that. And now there's the human rights lane, which of course has always been there, and it's been it gets less or more attention depending on the time. But it includes uh, you know sort of the ongoing sort of religious repression that's happening in certain parts of the country, and now Hong Kong, which is I think now in its fourth month of uh, of unrest, uh, and it's starting to look. Uh, Less like a protest and more like a revolution. But those three lanes, you know, unfair practices, technology disputes, and, and human rights are each complicated on their own, and they will wind up crossing over in each other and, and uh, making the entire situation more difficult. Let's explore that because in the lead up to the negotiations last week, the U.S. blacklisted Chinese technology companies that were involved in AI and surveillance operations, particularly uh, as it relates to That's the, the Uyghur population. That's the technology human rights link. Bleeding together. Yes, right. But it, but it seems as though the negotiations, or at least the negotiating teams, were able to compartmentalize and still make some progress. Is that sustainable? Or do you think the other lanes that Scott's identified, Bill, do you think those lanes will eventually bleed into the negotiation, right? There's kind of the thinking, you know, there's an economic conflict between the US and China, and then there's a broader systems conflict that involves core values, technology, et cetera. I don't think all three lanes are the same size. I, right. mean, I, I agree with Scott that there's three of them. The security lane will be the most difficult uh, going forward, first of all, because I think the issues are genuine. 
for a lot of people, they trump everything else. You know, if mm-hmm. there is a security threat, it there should not be. They should not be on the bargaining table. You should deal with a security. You should threat. deal with security issue and and the president's uh, apparent willingness to keep these things on the table. Uh, has been disconcerting to a lot of people, I think including some of his own, the hawks of, amongst his own advisors. The human rights lane, I think, it's a convenient tool for the administration. The president, I don't think, has ever in his entire term ever indicated much personal interest in human rights anywhere. Uh, and I think that uh, this is no different. I think it is one more uh, tool that he can use to squeeze, in this case, uh, the Chinese. And because uh, you can do it in a way that also advances our security interests, uh, it's convenient. But I think that if other issues get settled, that one would go away, I think, in his mind. The, the, the footnote, of course, is that there's a lot of people in this country I think because of our history and the way we think, who care enormously about human rights. And what's happening in Hong Kong has outraged a lot of people. Uh, what's happening in Xinjiang and what they're doing to the Uyghurs has outraged even more people, including in Congress. And so I think there's a lot of pressure on the administration to step up and, and take a much more forceful attitude on these subjects. And as long as it's convenient for the president to do so, for other reasons, I think he will. Will it get so bad that uh, he won't have any choice but to pull back because of what the Chinese are doing? I think that would probably depend mostly on what happens in Hong Kong. If the PLA moves in, if the uh, Chinese government is perceived as having sanctioned, approved, or instigated violence in Hong Kong, I think that would make it very difficult for him to do an agreement in the face of U.S. public opinion. Right. And, And so the administration and Congress are taking action on those fronts, right? So last week, the administration put eight Chinese companies, they essentially gave them the Huawei treatment. These are Chinese uh, technology surveillance and AI companies. This week, Congress has advanced through the House a legislative package on Hong Kong, which among other things shows or expresses US support for the protesters there. And in response, China has threatened vague retaliation, uh, although the language that they use was quite stark. And then finally, there's this whole episode with the NBA and Hong Kong, which raises a separate issue of how businesses now have to operate in a very complex environment where their reliance on the Chinese market or their desire to get into the Chinese market for economic reasons is quite strong. Yet there's an issue of, uh, you know, standing up and, and exhibiting American values like free speech, et cetera. Right. So, you know, should businesses navigate that? And just to put it into perspective with the NBA issue, the NBA has video streaming deal with Tencent, a Chinese company that's worth $1.5 billion over five years. 500 million Chinese individuals watched at least one basketball game last year. And then NBA players rely on shoe sales, Nike endorsements, and also have deals with Chinese apparel companies. Right. And so this is a massive issue. Uh, and it's not just the NBA. There are countless other examples of companies who have been scolded by the Chinese or threatened market access for statements, decisions, et cetera. And so, you know, how should U.S. businesses now approach this fraught relationship? Companies don't like to be in these positions. I mean, companies like to be – they just like to do their business and, and they don't like to be dragged into into politics. It's particularly difficult for companies that basically have a consumer brand. That's where the boycotts come in. That's where the, the, the protests come in. 
they also end up in the position, this is happening in the NBA, where no matter what they do, somebody's going to be unhappy. In the NBA case, if you apologize, then the people that were outraged by the Chinese uh, pushing them around get upset. If you stand up for uh, freedom of speech and, and free speech, then the Chinese are upset. Uh, so you're going to lose fans uh, one way or the other. If you do nothing, then they're both upset. So it puts companies in a, in a no-win position. Where I ended up was, from an American point of view, I think, what the CEOs ought to do. And it, it you know, there are people in these corporations that are not uh, as a soulless as Elizabeth Warren would have you believe. There are actual individuals running them. They ought to do what they think is right and just live with it, you know, and so well, they can look at themselves in the mirror in the morning. I actually agree with that completely. And uh, but I worry about the direction of uh, at least large corporations in America. I, it was less than a month ago that many CEOs of the Business Roundtable signed a statement about they had multiple stakeholders and sought to serve the interests and concerns of these multiple stakeholders instead of providing shareholder value. Uh, and uh, now that becomes incredibly difficult in our in our interconnected world when you have major differences and you have a power like China, which is prepared to sort of play for keeps in this. I mean, in the very early days of the Hong Kong protests, when they were still could be characterized that way, the government of China forced Cathay Pacific to fire some, some of its employees who were caught with the offense of, of protesting uh, in Hong Kong. All right, so this was this pretty clear was going to be the the approach of of China, but uh, but uh, look, I, I think that many companies are going to long for the day when if you produced a good or service of superior quality and value to competition and uh, and uh, stayed in business and rewarded your shareholders that that was good enough, uh, and that and for a long time was getting woke seems to carry a lot of problems with it. Yeah, but I, I think you have to put in perspective, too, the, the sort of long-term versus short-term of these things. I rather like the roundtable statement. I, I think it was kind of a bold thing to do because I interpret it as saying, look, there's more to, to corporate success uh, than quarterly earnings and that the health of the corporation over the long term and therefore the return to shareholders over the long term it has to be uh, taken into account. It's not just what are you going to do for the next three months. Yes, and that that much is true. In fact, that was a widely held philosophy in the 1950s and 60s. Correct. Yes. Okay. Right. By by far, and and sort of the move to to total shareholder value as the as the single measure had had downsides to it, had difficulties. But it's very difficult to manage, and and so you have the MBA, which is getting the full brunt of this. But look, the NBA was woke to begin with. The NBA had points of view on American policy. They were they were, had points of view on state policy, okay. That they were willing to to use their economic power to act against, and now it's now it's kind of backfiring. So uh, I'm I'm just very interested to see where this settles, and uh, it is going to take very careful management and really real visionary leadership to get through these kinds of things. I just yeah, I think if if you spend too much time trying to game it and figure out right. how we navigate through. You just end up making everything worse. You got to figure uh, out what the right thing to do is, is and do going, it. Some people are going to do it and do it. No matter what you do, even if you do nothing, a substantial number of people are going to be mad at you. Yes. Which is why I sort of ended up. You can just skip all that. Do what you think is the right thing and live with it. Yes. Let me flip that back on both of you then, and say you're CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and expansion into China is the next hottest thing that you think will drive growth for your company and your shareholders, et cetera. I mean, how big of a flashing red light is this NBA episode? I mean, what kind of signal does that send to American companies 
looking to grow and looking at China as a key part of that growth? I think the signal it sends is don't go there. Now, that's a dangerous thing to say. I've been at sessions with representatives of big companies who, who've said that it's such a big market with so many people that you can't really be a multinational company and not be there. And I think for a lot of companies, they feel they don't have any choice uh, but to go. And even if they only end up with a small slice of the market, which is normally what happens, because it's not a exactly a market in the normal sense of the word. The Chinese will pretty much decide what slice they're going to get. But even if it's a small slice, it's a lot of money. So if you say don't go, you're asking them to make a rather significant sacrifice. But the costs of going, uh, in not only in terms of the, the sort of the, the moral hazard position it puts you in, but the cost uh, potentially of, of having your IP stolen out from under you or forced technology transfer or fairly overt discrimination once you're there, the costs can be enormous. Yes. And look, if you go, you better have a strategy to manage the risk to and you, and go in with your eyes open. That has uh, been true of foreign markets for a long time. Uh, for hundreds of years, foreign markets were fairly hostile places to home market companies. And, and it, it got a lot better fast in the post-World War II era. And uh, we forget that there are, there are risks that need to be addressed, need to be planned for and managed when you run operations away from your home market. Tricky situation, not going to be resolved anytime soon, I don't think, especially as the Chinese consumer market gets wealthier and wealthier and becomes more attractive. To shift gears, there is still the outstanding issue of USMCA, as always. Nancy Pelosi said today that there's good progress being made, uh, which is obviously a positive sign. Which is the same thing she said for the last is, 10 days. Which is the same, right, but you know, still positive rhetoric from her. Uh, she again reiterated that enforcement is the key issue, as it has been for Democrats for quite a while. But last week, Richard Trumka, head of the AFL-CIO, country's largest labor organization, said a vote before Thanksgiving on USMCA would be ill-advised and would be dead on arrival. So what do you all make of that? Because the administration and Republicans, I think, have been fairly transparent that you know pre-Thanksgiving vote is their preferred timeline. Well, look, a couple of things. One is uh, that progress can only be made in small increments for a time. I mean, if you if you start one day and walk halfway toward the wall across the room from you uh, every day, you'll never reach the wall. You've got to find a way to to bridge the conclusion. My view is that they are in a position to do that because a there's I still I think goodwill on all sides, and b and for me this is the more important part of what makes this congressional process different than previous trade agreements is there has not yet been organized opposition to the passage of the agreement. Now, Mr. Trumpka's statement may change that, and labor has always been the, the issue that is most prominent among the objections and among the improvements needed, mostly because it, uh, the labor movement still moves votes. So the, this is, this is one, the one they had to get right. Uh, they haven't gotten it yet, but time, time's wasting. And uh, if the Trumpka statement turns into actual mobilized opposition, then there's trouble that hasn't been visible so far. And that would, to my mind, it would be a change in the situation. I got a firsthand view of this because last night I, I went to a dinner, which, as I mentioned, and the guests were a number of Democratic freshmen. And it was a skewed sample. It wasn't a representative sample. They were pro-trade freshmen, but they were from a variety of places, uh, the South, Midwest, industrial, North. And they were all pro-trade, and they were all talking about 
how important getting this done was for their constituents. Uh, the ones that represented farmers were the most exercised sure. about it, because, and they had lots and lots of stories about the difficulties that their communities are facing because of what's going on. I was tempted to ask them, so why are they all still going to vote for Trump? But uh, we didn't have that conversation. But it's very clear that there's a, you know, a, a significant element of, which I think the speaker listens to, that's what's mm-hmm. partly driving this train. A lot of these freshmen, which are the ones that gave her the majority, they're the ones that, you know, they defeated Republicans, they, they either took open seats that had been Republican, or they defeated Republicans. Uh, and that's those that's are the people she, that made her speaker. That's why she's speaker. Exactly. And she's paying attention to them. And I'd like to think that at the end of the day, organized labor, and it wasn't just Trumpka. You know, he was followed by the UAW, the United Auto Workers, and the International Association of Machinists saying the same thing. I would like to think that they're going to figure out that they are so much better off on a host of issues with the Democrats running the show than they are with Republicans running the show, not just on trade, yes. but on labor law and union dues and a, this whole host of issues where the, this administration in particular has tried to reduce their influence, to reduce their ability to organize, and that you would think that at the end of the day they would be focused on, you know, what can we do to help the speaker maintain the majority? I also don't think the proponents have to be careful not to ask too mu- for too much. You don't have to get an endorsement out of Richard Trump. No, no, no you just have move. to. You have to be, leave him in a position where he does not mobilize opposition. Yes, exactly. That's the key. Where does the Thanksgiving deadline come in then? Right, it just seems kind of arbitrary, right? It's not entirely clear what he's looking for. He has doubts, maybe about Mexico's ability to enforce their own labor law reforms. I just don't know what could happen between now and Thanksgiving. That just, would look, this is never going to be good right? enough. I, I have no idea where the Thanksgiving uh, date comes from either. Uh, I think that there are very few legislative days after Thanksgiving. It may be part of it. Uh, and look, this is never going to be satisfactory. It's never going to be enough. So the key question is how far do they have to get it where it's it's good enough to address the concerns in a fair way and not provoke organized opposition. I think, will Mrs. Pelosi get half her caucus, 130 votes? I don't think so. Okay. Will she get 80? She probably could. Okay. So this is not a terrible outcome, but it is one that speakers are careful about. And uh, it's complicated. It's still complicated. And it always has been. The thing that worries me is some of the opponents, some of the labor opponents are saying that we can't do it until we see evidence of Mexican implementation which really is not the postponement till after Thanksgiving. That means postponement for months, if not years, for them to develop a track record. In a way, there's kind of a catch-22 there. The Mexicans don't have any obligation to to implement the agreement until the agreement's been approved. Correct. I mean, they have an obligation to implement their own law. Yes. But uh, if you wait for them to develop a track record, I think we'll be waiting a long time. At some point, I think uh, the parties simply have to say, you know, they made commitments. They put their money with their mouth where their mouth is in the budget. That needs to be decided. Yes. And that it's time to move on. Do you think if push came to shove and the administration submitted the implementing legislation and the speaker put the bill on the floor before Thanksgiving that it would have the votes to pass? Well, look, I think those two things are inconsistent. If the administration sends the bill, I, I think that trips a, a wire that would gain resistance if when Mr. Neal and his working group are ready for a markup and the bill goes forward. At that point, I think it's a deal. 
Okay, and and that it will move in 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 good good faith. But I I would still discourage any provocative action because I think it's it yeah. it, it would be seen as bad faith. We've talked about this before. I think Scott's right. If the president submits it preemptively, uh, it goes down because the Democrats will will rebel. Uh, if the speaker puts it forward, uh, it'll pass because she won't put it forward until she's got the votes. Correct. Sure. Okay. So stay tuned on USMCA. Fair enough. And we'll be back. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.